So we've heard story after story of uh, Bitcoin companies being debanked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just talking about basic banking services here. Like, yeah. I just want to pay payroll. I just want to pay my electrical bill. Mm-hmm. And they're being excluded from that. And so we think states have an opportunity to rise up and dust off some old powers and say, you know, we want to protect this industry and we want it to be inside our borders because we see the value of it. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Dennis Porter, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Robert. Great to have you, man. Um, we've spoken on Zoom. I think it's the first time in person. Yeah. So nice to have you here in Miami. Absolutely. Always good to come to Miami. It's like I feel like I almost live here practically. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do live here now. Um, just relocated here, and we had a nice steak dinner last night with a lot of Bitcoiners, so that was fun. Yeah. Uh, just by way of quick introduction, you are the co-founder and CEO of the Satoshi Action Fund. Um, you guys are doing a lot of work in DC, basically trying to get Bitcoin into the minds of people up there. Um, and so we're going to talk about a number of things today. One is what you guys are working on, uh, what the Bitcoin strategy is, I think, to get Bitcoin into the minds of the political class. Um and we're also going to talk a little bit about the ETFs and pension funds. So I think there's a lot of people in Bitcoin, myself included, that tend to be pretty anti-state. But the work you guys are doing is to actually, you're pushing states towards buying or taking a positive orientation towards Bitcoin, specifically here in the United States. 
what is it in your view that that is so important that states take a positive orientation towards Bitcoin and why is it specifically important here in the US? Yeah, um, it's a great question. We have a lot of focus on the states at the state level. Um, you know, ultimately, we really view the states as a, you know, a couple of different things, a bulwark against federal overaction. Mm-hmm. So we see Liz Warren has her 20 co-sponsors for her bill that would, you know, project, you know, possibly backdoor ban self-custody and mining in the United States. And so these are very dangerous things. And so we're really concerned that there may not be enough states to stand up to that sort of activity. Mm. And so our effort is to try to make sure there are states that protect self-custody and that protect the right to mine, uh, as well as run nodes and a, and a few other things. And we mm. can talk about that legislation here in a little bit. Um, but the other the other work of why being active at the states is important is because they can be a, a laboratory of democracy as well. Mm. So you know, right now you have states competing all across the country for different types of industries, could be banking, could be Bitcoin, um, you name it. And so what they do is they develop policy to try to attract that industry, to try to grow that industry. Uh, And then eventually sometimes that policy uh, becomes so effective and is seen as such a winner that the federal government goes, oh, interesting, that's working really well, or we are going to adopt that at the federal level. Um, One quick example on that would be FDIC insurance. So back in the early 90s, it was all the different states competing with different banking models, different types of insurance. And ultimately, the federal government came in and saw what was happening and said, you know what, we really like this model and we're going to adopt it mm-hmm. and bring it to the federal level. And that's how and why we have FDIC insurance today. So the states really act, like I said, two ways as a bulwark of defense, yeah. but also to possibly even become a place for ideas to be created and then implemented at the federal level. So when you say you're talking about the individual states inside of the United States right. are a bulwark against uh, top down policy making from the federal government. That's exactly right. And then you're also saying that individual states creating good policy for certain industries uh the good ideas will rise to the top, right? If it's a good policy and it draws in industry, then other states will imitate it. Um, and that's how good ideas... So there's a, there's an element of competition in the yes. decentralized state model in the US that's healthy, actually. It'd be extremely healthy. Um, certainly something that we like to encourage and foster. The states are in a really unique opportunity right now, too, with this new industry, uh, You know, especially states anywhere in the country. You know, Previously, Back in the days before the days of the internet um, and, to, and you know, sort of the, all these advances that we're having in technology, including AI, it was more difficult for states, what people call flyover states, mm-hmm. to compete. Um, but now with Bitcoin mining, the admin of Bitcoin mining being able to be anywhere um, without really any need for infrastructure build out mm-hmm. is a way for states to be a part of this industry. Um, the potential for states to create new banking regulations, which is something we're working on. We don't, I don't want to dive into it too much here, mm-hmm. but we will have a banking paper coming out. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity there to capture that industry because right now, even some of the largest players in the crypto industry, Bitcoin industry broadly, yeah. um, they are getting pushed out and they're having really big problems in the banking space. We've heard story after story of uh, Bitcoin companies being debanked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're just talking about basic banking services here. Like, yeah. I just want to pay payroll. I just want to pay my electrical bill. Mm-hmm. And they're being excluded from that. And so we think states have an opportunity to rise up and dust off some old powers and say, you know, we want to protect this industry and we want it to be inside our borders because we see the value of it. Mm. And the iron is hot right now, I think, for states to assert their rights, individual states asserting their rights against the federal government. Can we talk about Texas? What's going on <laughs> Hard there? Hard to not talk about yeah. Texas, right? So I, what Greg Abbott put out a 
letter, I guess, the other day, basically saying that um, he did not agree with the Biden administration's handling of the southern border, so they were taking things into their own hands. I think now 15 other states in the U.S. have come out in support of Greg Abbott in Texas. Um, and when I saw this happening, I mean, a number of things. One, I saw, maybe this McCormick put out a funny tweet. He goes, it's funny that the United States can protect Israel and <laughs> Ukraine's tweet, borders, yeah. but not Texas. That was funny. Um, but what occurred to me was like, we have this inheritance, I guess, from the decentralized governance model that is the United States, like the best one there's ever been, basically, that's still paying dividends in a way, right? Mm-hmm. The, the fact that the federal government can't just open the immigration floodgates in the southern border without there being some resistance. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a feature, not a bug, right? Um, so what, I guess, what's going on for people that may not be familiar with this, this situation? And, and what is it about... I, this would be, I guess, the United States as a constitutional republic that's actually resisting some of this adverse change. Yeah. So uh, it's really interesting what's happening in Texas right now from states versus uh, federal government perspective. And it's an it's evolving situation. And by no means, you know, am I going to be 100% accurate on what's going on sure. here? But the, the my basic understanding of, what, of what's taking place is that uh, Greg Abbott is certainly concerned about the border, starts to create uh, more protections for, mm-hmm. to keep people from coming into the state of Texas. And then the Biden administration, um, through the Supreme Court, sort of ruled that they have supremacy on this issue, and mm-hmm. you know we're taking down those those barriers. Well, um, that pushed Greg Abbott to make the decision to declare an invasion. Mm-hmm. And under the Constitution, there is protections where if the federal government is not protecting that state from an invasion, mm-hmm. it, it, the state can rise up and essentially declare an invasion to mm-hmm. their border and say, "Now we're the supreme we're we're in the supreme position here to defend ourselves." But it, it requires that the Biden administration not be in action. So like right. not be taking action to stop these things. So that's gotcha. that's where he is. The strategy is coming from. Yeah. Um, the part that we go after for Satoshi action in our efforts is a little different than that. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a second. But the basic premise is that there is lots of protections in the Constitution for states. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something that's really underappreciated. And it's something that we really want to highlight at Satoshi action. And, it, and that's why we're, we're pursuing it. And it's why we've passed uh, laws to protect Bitcoin mining in two states. And now we're poised to introduce and hopefully pass in up to 16 states protections for all sorts of different things, self-custody, mm-hmm. mining, nodes, you name it. If it's part of the Bitcoin network, the technology itself, we'd want, we want to make sure that Americans have access to that. That's great. Oh, what if you had to speculate, um, why is the Biden administration so gung-ho about letting people flood in through the southern border? Is this uh, obviously he just canceled student loan debt recently, so I assume that was a, a stunt to buy votes. Is this another way to create new voters for their voter base? Or like, what what is? If you had to speculate, what is the motivation for this opening up of the southern border? And it was the, just to put numbers on it. I think Greg Abbott said six million people in the past three years. It's certainly a large number of people. I, I, I personally, I'll tell you, I don't like to speculate too much on people's motives. People mm-hmm. will say that it's because um, we need to help bring more laborers up here because we don't, um, people don't have enough children, sort of like re- almost like repopulating the mm-hmm. United States. Um, some people have, you know, said the voting thing, but mm-hmm. and the buying off voters. I don't like to assume um, what their intent is. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, a lot of people on the those, those border states are very, very concerned about the way mm-hmm. these things are happening. And then now, I mean, they're sort of passing off the the concern by, you've seen some governors send 
via bus some folks up to New York. Yeah. So I, I, it's a messy situation. I'm, I'm not a fan of how any of it's happening. I think yeah. it's really unfortunate um, and it is a crisis. Yeah. Um, and we need to figure out what we're going to be doing as a country moving forward. Hopefully we can... Hopefully we can get something good out of this back and forth between Texas and, and the federal government. And I, I hope it doesn't turn into something, uh, more, you know, potentially worse than that. Yeah. My conspiracy theorist spidey sense is going off a lot and seems like U.S. is abroad doing a lot of damage, like especially in the Middle East. And then we're just opening up the southern border to allow anyone that may be hostile towards the U.S. as a result to come into the country. And it feels like uh, an effort towards a controlled demolition. And, uh, you know, again, conspiracy theory hat on, there is this push towards one world government taking place. And I think the United States and the First Amendment and the U.S. Constitution are the last impediments towards something like that. So doesn't feel right. Whatever's going on, something's fishy. I'm really happy to see Greg Abbott standing up against it, saying this is enough. And Texans, the feedback I'm hearing from Texans are like, it's about damn time. Like you should have done this a year ago, two years ago. So um, definitely seems like a lot of people are are seeing some value in what's being done, even if it's too little, too late, perhaps. Um, okay, so there are some parallels, perhaps, with what you guys are trying to do in the what you're calling the cannabis strategy i guess what cannabis how cannabis law cannabis legal reform has changed throughout this country there are some parallels to what we could do strategically with with btc um can you talk a little about a little bit about that and starting with you mentioned 2010 that there's a strategy change maybe we could start there yeah yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the stuff that Greg Abbott is pursuing, the sort of powers that he is he is using that are awarded to him in the Constitution as a governor of Texas, um, it might be something that's like sort of state powers, but it's not the same strategy or the same sort of powers that we're trying to use. Um, we're really concerned more so about the Tenth Amendment, and the Tenth Amendment is interpreted. I mean, sort of when you read it, it's, it's sort of hard to re- understand what it means. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court has uh, interpreted it to, to mean that. If there is a federal law that is not in alignment with a state law, it's up to the federal government to enforce that law at the states. Mm-hmm. So as you, we talked about it a little bit before, and you said right. they can't deputize the states. Right. So now if the state law is in alignment with the federal law, as it was during the war on drugs, right. you saw a pretty aggressive, mm-hmm. highly aggressive approach yeah. uh, towards the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And so eventually though, what changed is there was clearly a societal change. People were feeling mm-hmm. more relaxed, particularly towards cannabis. Mm-hmm. But in 2010, the strategy on how to get uh, cannabis adoption to mm-hmm. take place shifted pretty dramatically within the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really a coordinated event. It was just, they saw some things work and they all sort of started moving that direction mm-hmm. at once. And it, very much like the Bitcoin space, like we're, there's no CEO. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no CEO of cannabis too, right? It's like, right. so- um, they decided in 2010, instead of saying, you know, I should be able to smoke whatever I want. I should be able to ingest whatever I want. It's my body. Mm-hmm. They changed the strategy to say, what are the benefits of the cannabis industry for a state? Mm. And so they went to state lawmakers of a ton of different states and they said, cannabis can reduce crime. Cannabis industry can be reduced crime if you legalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have a lot of tax revenue mm-hmm. um, and you can increase property values. And there's a few other things that they said as well. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing really was the tax revenue, to mm-hmm. be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the raking sure. in. 
And I just talked about this on another show, the rigging in like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, and that's all stuff that is a new tax revenue and they can go and um, pay for schools and that sort of things. And I, I don't know your, your, your position on your sort of an, the anti-tax position, but yeah, ultimately but, that pitch but, worked for. But from a state's perspective, yeah. these are states that were also broke, right? right? So it's a pretty easy sell. It's like, hey, all you have to do is decriminalize this industry and tax it and you can have this huge incremental increase in revenues. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so they, that pitch worked. Yeah. And in 2010, they started that strategy. In 2012, uh, Colorado and Washington passed pro-cannabis laws. And then the rest is history. Now we have 75% of the country mm-hmm. who has pro-cannabis mm-hmm. laws on their books, everything from full legalization to medical. But I mean, mm-hmm. just a decade before that, it was the states and the federal government were in lockstep. Yeah. So I, I want to pursue that same exact strategy that the cannabis industry pursued that even if the federal government is not going to align with you, that you go to the states and you advocate for your industry, you advocate for Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and you say Bitcoin is good for creating jobs, mm-hmm. local investment on the mining side. You have grid stability. Mm-hmm. You have the ability to mitigate methane emissions, mm-hmm. and you have the ability to enhance energy projects, particularly green energy projects. Mm-hmm. And so lawmakers like they hear that and they go, "Oh, oh I like that stuff. I, I really want that stuff in my state." And that's the the strategy that we've pursued. It's been very effective in uh, 2023, mm-hmm. which is last year. We were able to pass our right to mine bill into law in Montana and Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So we started with two states also, just like the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And now in 2024, we're hoping to sort of smash records as a new organization and get our policy passed in at least 10 states. We have already 16 states ready to uh, introduce our policy. Mm-hmm. Four of them have already done that. That's including uh, Arkansas, excuse me, Missouri, uh, Nebraska, Indiana, and uh, Virginia. So, mm, very cool. Arkansas the, passed the the one last year. So, the, so 2010, there was maybe like a cultural change towards THC, and then that started that changed the the approach of the industry towards lawmakers, and that kind of got the dominoes going, so to speak, on this cannabis reform. How quickly? Because you said now we have 75 percent of the states in the U.S. are pro THC. How quickly did that? I mean, that's fourteen years. Like, Since two thousand twelve was when the first two passed. So, and then was it exponential for me? Like how? It well, it, it once the tax revenue numbers came in, it became very exactly. fast. Okay, yeah. so that's the again the money, right? Once mm. the other states saw how much that's right, these other states were raking in in terms of tax revenue, they were very quick to convert. Did they just start adopting their policies, sort of copy paste? Um, it was very different in each state. The sort of um, development of it mm-hmm. because the design of, you know, who can grow, how can they, how much can they grow, those sort of things. I mean, generally they very much did look uh, at each other and say, okay, what did they do? Did it work? Mm-hmm. Let's copy that. Or yeah. let's take the good parts and leave yeah. the bad parts. So there is a lot of um, looking to other states mm-hmm. for what to pass. I mean, as an example for us, when we passed right to mine in two states last year, now we're getting ready for this year, two states or two representatives mm-hmm. of two states just reached out to us and were like, we're just going to pass this bill that you already passed in another state. Like, mm. They saw what we passed and right. said, oh, we like that. We're going to take about 90% of that and add it to our gotcha. uh, add it to our state. So states very much do um, not just compete, but almost like collaborate yeah. to create uni- uniform policy across the country. Right. So you would you expect then for tax revenue numbers to come in from Bitcoin mining that was newly legalized or accommodated in some of these states, and then we'd see other states start to flip more quickly as we did with cannabis? 
it'll be a little more difficult to tell the story um, from a data perspective mm-hmm. than the cannabis industry because the cannabis industry is so simple, right? I mean, it's so easy to tax Sales it. Tax. I mean, yeah. it's so easy to tax it and no, nobody complains because they're like, well, it was legal anyway. So yeah. at least we have it with, we right. can get access now and at least that money's going to a good place. There's no real direct way that you can create sort of that level of tax revenue. Mm-hmm. However, there is a pretty good amount of tax revenue that, that does come from the sale of electricity. Mm-hmm. So there is some components there. Uh, but the biggest thing, I think the big story will be that Bitcoin mining is going mm-hmm. to fix the grid. And that is yeah. a big part of that story. Right. Um, and it's not just us as, as advocates running around telling that story. Yeah. This year, unlike last year, last year when we were passing law, it was like FTX collapsing, 17K Bitcoin. The lawmakers were like, is this stuff even going to be around? Like, right. <laughs> So right. uh, we uh, we still were able to pass in two states where we met with some really great lawmakers, mm-hmm. uh, Representative McClure and um, Senator Zolnikov in Montana. And they were, you know, they still said, okay, yeah, this thing is going to be around and, and I believe in it. Um, but um, now we're in a completely different place, right? We have ETFs being issued. Mm-hmm. We're 40K Bitcoin. Um, and also the big thing is we have peer reviewed research to back up the claims that we make about mm-hmm. Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And I don't, I don't know what it is about peer reviewed research, but um, yeah. there is a certain effect it has on lawmakers. And, right. and part of the reason why is because they have such little time to focus sure. on all these things. Yeah. There's a border crisis, there's yeah. a war, there's a homeless crisis. Yeah. And so when you come in with this new issue, they're like, shorten the time it takes for me to not only understand, right. but to trust that this is real. Yeah. And so peer-reviewed research is just a very, very effective way to cut through that. Yeah. They're getting some social validation of sorts, I guess, that yes. just allows them to make a decision with more confidence. It, it, humans are always trying to save energy. Yeah. And so if they can save time, mental energy, yeah. Uh, calories, yes. trying to figure out if something is a good idea, they will do that. And so they've come to trust the peer review process. Um, organizations like mine are really important mm-hmm. in the process because I'm not a Bitcoin mining company. Mm-hmm. I don't make money if they pass a law. Mm-hmm. So I have no direct economic incentive in getting these things done. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I'm, you know, I'm, I hold Bitcoin, of course, mm-hmm. um, but I don't get, so there's no direct impact. Mm-hmm. So when we come in as a third party validator and say, these are good ideas, these are good laws, it's very helpful for lawmakers mm. to get that experience, especially because we're there all along the whole process. We fly in, we visit, we we come on calls, we do trainings, we do education. Um, you know, we hire lobbyists to help in the process if we need mm-hmm. to as well. So we create a lot of value for those lawmakers mm-hmm. where in an area where oftentimes they just don't have the resources. Yeah. Some state lawmakers are volunteers. They're not, right. even, they're not even paid. Right. And yeah. they have very minimal staff. Yeah. So an organization that comes in, it's like, we're the expert on this issue. We understand it. Here's the research. Here's other states that have passed it. Yeah. Like, That's this great. is a good idea. And right. so it really helps them to be like, oh, this is a no-brainer. Everybody else is doing this. Yeah. Um, it's reasonable. We're not asking for money from them. We're just saying, right. can you let Bitcoin exist and be safe in the US? Yeah. Yeah. You're just encouraging them to take an honest look at it and then helping them take the honest look, right? right. So here's here's the research. Are you, do you find yourself contending with the confusion between Bitcoin and crypto often still? Like, that's a great question. Last year, I'm sure yeah. it was people thought, you know, FTX, I can't count how many people were like, oh, Bitcoin is still around. I thought that FTX thing like collapsed and went away. Like, they still think FTX equals BTC and it blows my mind. So I, I would imagine you're dealing with similar confusion. There is a lot of, correlation in a lawmaker's mind that crypto is just all sort of the same thing. Like yeah. like what correlation between the assets, like they don't yeah. really look at them too differently. There's a big debate in the Bitcoin space. There has been that, you know, we should really educate lawmakers 
you know, that these things are different. And I like, I, I like that. I'm supportive mm-hmm. of that, but I also am concerned about what we're up against and the clock we're up against. And I'm, I'm worried that if we spend the next five years, 10 years educating enough lawmakers to get to a point where they're fine just being like, okay, we're, it's all about Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which isn't sort of inevitable to some degree. But I'm worried that w- with the efforts like what's happening in DC with Liz Warren trying to backdoor ban Bitcoin, she's got 20 co-sponsors mm-hmm. and um, you know the efforts at the Federal Reserve and the banking system to suppress Bitcoin companies. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, there is, you know, it's all like the choke point 2.0 stuff. It's mm-hmm. like, they're trying to stop this stuff. There's certain people that are, I'm not saying it's the whole government broadly, but there are yeah. people, especially Liz Warren. I mean, that's sort of a, yeah. a given yeah. that want to put a stop to the success and the adoption of right. Bitcoin in the US, say. And so- I feel like we don't have the time mm-hmm. to do the education necessary to say that they are different. Let's just go in and explain the value of the technology, mm-hmm. what it can add, and create a pathway for these technologies to be mm-hmm. safe. Bitcoin predominantly is the one I care about, is the mm-hmm. only one I care about, mm-hmm. um, to be safe inside these jurisdictions. Right. And by doing sort of what we have, our approach is to be just very tech neutral. Yeah. When I go in, of course, I'm talking about Bitcoin the whole time. I mean, look at all of our research. It's all Bitcoin research. Sure. But at the end of the day, we don't really want to spend too much time trying to say, oh, well, you know, this coin's not that important and this coin's not that important. They right. sort of start to get into the mindset like, oh, you're just pumping your own bags. What were you saying earlier, though, that there's a tech neutral yeah. policy inertia in this country already? So you're just sort of accommodating that. That's a big part of it. Yeah. So uh, decades ago, particularly it became very popular when, when tech started taking off in the USA. Mm-hmm. They started to craft policy to say, oh, well, let's like, help this technology and help this technology. And then all of a sudden, you know, new technologies came out and obliterated those ones. Right. And so the policies that they had crafted were sort of irrelevant at that mm-hmm. point. And so they had learned over time, lawmakers, to make policy extremely neutral. Mm-hmm. And now it is like a cultural political norm in the United States. Gotcha. That if you come in and you say, no, 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 we just want to do one thing. We don't want to do all everything else. They're like, well, that's not how it works. Right. So really. it's, it's just written more generally, right? Like instead of writing something for the fax machine, you write it for telecommunications. That's right. Something like that. A hundred percent. That makes a lot of sense. What is this timeline you keep referring to? What are you, what, what is the timeline you're concerned with about Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, so when I first sort of became concerned around the political attack of Bitcoin, it was early just before, right as we were going into the shutdowns. And I just saw, you know, the federal government become very active and very powerful and sort of very concentrated in a very short period of time. And in that, in that mindset and in that environment, you know, I started thinking, you know, like what if at some point the federal government decides to go after Bitcoin and there looked like there was some tendency to go after mm-hmm. the digital asset space broadly, but Bitcoin is certainly included in that group. Um, and I sat there and I was like, well, no worries, just like everybody else, I'll just go to El Salvador I'll just move. I, I, you know, j- jurisdictional arbitrage, and but I really sat there and thought about it, and I thought about all my family members, and I thought about the business that we owned at the time, and I thought about you know my mother-in-law that lives, um, you know, on on the on the property with us as well, and we take we take care of her, um, and I realized I was like, I'm not going to really convince all these people to move to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to happen. <laughs> and I got to sell my house. You know, it's like, yeah. I was like, uh, this is looking a little bleak. And so I, th- I sat there and I thought, well, if I'm not going to be able to move myself to El Salvador. Then it becomes a question of like, what if the federal government does go that direction and the government says, you know, you need to relinquish your Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be like, it's like pick your family over your Bitcoin. I am mean, certainly I'm picking my family, sure. but it's like, I'm a big, big, big believer in Bitcoin. Yeah. And um, I would never want to face that 
sure. challenge of being like, oh, I guess you got to either go go dark or go underneath. You yeah. Know? I, yeah. Sort of impossible for me now because I'm so public. But yeah. um, and then I in that moment I realized I was like, I need to do everything possible to make sure the United States is the best place in the world to be a Bitcoiner and mm-hmm. a Bitcoin miner. Mm-hmm. That's the mission. And that's what was the jettison of Satoshi action. Yeah. And that's why we're driving and pushing so hard and so fast forward is because I'm concerned about my own personal rights, mm-hmm. but I'm also concerned about every other Bitcoiner in this country Sure, to make sure that they can access Bitcoin, they can self-custody Bitcoin, they can mine Bitcoin, they can run a node. Mm-hmm. Um, that needs to be protected. And I'm worried that we're up against a clock where the federal government is interested in going the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to go as fast as I can um, in the most responsible and sort of... Um, strategic way yeah. uh, by following the pathways of, you know, like the cannabis industry yeah. and following the, the constitution and the, the design, the framers developed yeah. for us to protect us. Will it work? I, I believe it'll work mm-hmm. if we get to that point where we're up against the federal government. Yeah. Do I hope we get to that point? No, of course. But it's, we're moving that direction. Is this a clock that is ticking based on Bitcoin price? Like the likelihood that they would try to clamp down on Bitcoin increases as Bitcoin's price goes up? Is that what you think? I think that as Bitcoin adoption increases, the tendency or the desire to suppress it increases, increases especially right. with being in the United States, yeah. especially with the party in power, because the party in power controls the money printer. Mm-hmm. They control the government. Right. And Bitcoin is disruptive to power. Yes. And so if you're in power, you're sort of like, eh, not really a big fan of this. So yeah. I'm not even I'm not even assuming maybe maybe it will happen, but I'm not assuming that if the next president gets into power and they you know, are not a Democrat, mm-hmm. that they will be all supportive of Bitcoin. Like, I'm not entirely convinced of sure. that argument. I, it's possible right. that if a Republican gets into power, that they could be like, oh, this is great. We love this stuff. Right. But they very well could just be like, oh, this is actually a threat to my power. I'm going to like suppress it. Right. So I don't assume that I, I don't bet on DC at all. Good bet. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're instead, this is more of a grassroots uh, state level mm-hmm. as, opposed, as opposed to federal level create creation of factions in a way right that these individual states will then support or have legal frameworks that acknowledge bitcoin or acknowledge people's right to Mm self-custody and then that you were saying that leverages the 10th amendment essentially Mm -hmm. so now the federal government if federal law contradicts individual state law Mm -hmm. then the states still kind of have a right to um they don't need to give to federal law basically right they can have their own so you is that the move that it's kind of grassroots first mover laws in place makes it harder for the federal government to yeah. to squash it basically? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, it's sort of also the same premise of, you know, what happened with the gold and with gold when the federal government sort of took over, like yeah. they, they centralized the supply, they centralized the gold industry, and mm-hmm. then they just kind of went and took everything. Like right. they didn't go door to door to sure. take people's sure. gold. Sure. I mean, it was, there was very rare instances where during 6102 that the federal government did that. Yeah. So even in that case, in that situation where we get a 6102 replicated, like we need to make sure that those states won't help the federal government right. take your Bitcoin away from you or yeah. destroy your Bitcoin business. Because it's- it's very difficult from a resource perspective for the federal government to maintain a controlled, um, deliberate attack on Bitcoin where they're going door to door to taking self-custody. I mean, the resources that are required for that are just not something the federal government has put time and energy into. Now they could, they could go around and really scare people and and create a long-term effect. But it's at the end of the day, like how there's millions of people that own Bitcoin. Sure. And there's tons of them who have it in self-custody that you don't even know they have it. So, um, 
I want to make sure that those that ability to self custody is extremely protected because yes. that's a really big scare of mine. Yes. Is that the federal government will regulate self custody to the point where doing it is essentially a crime, mm-hmm. and then people will relinquish, and then all of a sudden, like nobody really owns Bitcoin; they just own a paper version of Bitcoin. Yeah, the government really can just go in and take it all. It's like a it's point. a it's a really important point. You know, there's this misconception that people think, oh, if it becomes illegal, then that's just that's it. The law says you can't do it. So everyone stops doing it. Like that's not how it actually works. Right. There's, there's this enforceability factor. Yeah. And if you have millions of people in self-custody, an executive order 6102 becomes much less enforceable, right? There's just, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And even if you are going door to door, like hard to get it out of self-custody. And it's, what's really important, actually funny enough, what you said there, the juice is not worth the squeeze if we pursue the strategy. And in the United States, oftentimes you will find that you know, there's laws, but then there's ways to change those laws and yeah. the government kind of kind of get away with what it wants to do. But it, it generally doesn't do that unless there is a political pathway. Yeah. So if it takes too much political capital, if there's too many obstacles in the way, yeah. they're like, well, let's go a different direction. Right. And so we want to really reduce the incentive yes. to go after Bitcoin and protect rights. But ultimately also, you know, that's like the doomsday scenario. Yeah. Maybe it's the other side of the coin. Maybe our policy ends up becoming something that gets adopted at the federal level. They yes. realize, wow, this is right. really working. Right. So it's 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 both sides of the coin. We have the do we have the doomsday scenario protected, mm-hmm. but we're also making sure that maybe we are the laboratory of democracy that creates right. the ideas for the future of how Bitcoin should be managed in the USA. You would hope so. I mean, it's like if there's any and I asked um I had another guest on the other day that works in D.C. And I was like, are there any real red-blooded Americans left in D.C.? The people that actually care about, you know, life, liberty, property, what this, the ethos this country was founded upon. And she's like, yeah, there's a few. There's a lot that aren't, that are just kind of in it for the, the take, you know, the, the stereotypical politician. Mm-hmm. But I, I struggle to think of a more American technology in the sense of the principles this country was founded upon than Bitcoin. Right? It's like the ultimate technology for protecting life, liberty, and property. You know, it's the strongest form of private property we've ever had. Mm-hmm. You can put your private keys on your brain. You can cross any geographic boundary with your net worth. That's right. Mind, right. That's like limitless liberty, basically, to take your wealth with you. And then it's lowering the profitability of coercion and violence. So that's good for life. Like it's, it is American. I, I, I not when I say that, people are like, no, it's global and every country can have it's like that's not what i mean i mean like american in spirit and ethos it's like aligned in this it's aligned in values yes so like if that idea it's not that complicated could get into the minds of the right people inside of dc i feel like there could be this maybe wake up call like hey this is we've gotten away from our roots america this is an opportunity to go back so there's like a fun political theory around the impact of bitcoin I don't know if you've heard some folks on um, Twitter and various other places talk about how things kind of seem to be moving um, in the opposite direction, like going oh, in reverse. history running in reverse. Yeah. yeah. Is that, I think it's a Balaji thing. Yeah. yeah so, Balaji, yeah. Um, so I think that we're experiencing that uh, same situation where all of a sudden we're going back to a world where politicians could potentially be more beholden to the voters. Because mm. right now, here's the big problem. <laughs> the money printer is That's so crazy, powerful yeah. and so strong and so corrupting. Yeah. That anybody who gets close to it, it doesn't matter how how good you are, how great you are. It's just the it's so easy just to hit that button, just yes. print a little more money, print a little more money. Yeah. And when you have the power of the U.S. dollar money printer, because it's so robust comparatively to every other fiat, you can really just keep hitting that button. Um, 
and there's a couple really bad uh, incentives that that sort of creates. But the the really big problem in my mind is that it it hyper centralizes the need to be close to the money printer from a corporate and a business interest as well. Yeah. And so this is why you have people throwing millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars for presidential elections yeah. to get control over that sort of government system. Yeah. But in my opinion, I think that that will always exist to some degree. Sure. My opinion is that it's highly accelerated due to the ability of to get access course. to that money printer. Of course. And so if we get to a world where there's less incentive because the money printer is either weaker due yes. to the due to the checks and balances of Bitcoin. I don't assume the dollar is going to go away. In fact, I think that Bitcoin as an asset, when put next to the dollar, yeah. will help maintain some checks and balances and, yes. and say, okay, we're going to have this flexible currency over here, but Bitcoin will be a constant barometer of how much we're using that. And so people can really yes. know how much it's being used because we don't have an idea of how much the money printer is being used right now. At uh, all. We have no idea. That's exactly right. Yeah, it forces central banks at a minimum to be more responsible yes. for their monetary policy. Yes. Like may like distant long run, maybe it obliterates the whole thing and becomes a world of but in the meantime, yeah. it definitely forces you um to be more responsible. And then again, yeah, you man, the power it is absolute power, basically, if you can print money. I mean that's the closest thing in the real world that we have to the notion of absolute power. Mm -hmm. So it's unsurprising that it does seem to corrupt absolutely. Yes, as Lord Acton said. So we're really just saying, you know, and, and to your point too, it's you'll do anything to get close to that power, right? This is mm -hmm. the whole right. get too big to fail or die trying, right? If you can get your business so big and so systemically important that you'll get a bailout every time the economy turns south, well, then you're in a mortal company, right? You're just yes. living off of the money printer forever. And in that world, you get a lot of centralization, a lot of monopolies, and a lot of disregard for customer preferences because you don't need to satisfy customers anymore to turn a profit. You live off of stolen proceeds through the money printer. Yeah. And this is like this is that vicious, pervasive, even ubiquitous dynamic that's like infecting the world. It's just the whole game of economics gets flipped over and becomes purely politicized. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's, I mean, this is why I, I'm very bullish on it flipping the incentives for lawmakers and resulting in lawmakers that sort of pay more attention to what's going on to their jurisdiction. Because right now, I mean, I'll tell you in DC, the funny part is like the states, they don't have a money printer. Yeah. Right. And so their incentives are different. And it's, it's actually, it's, our, it's part of why we have a bigger impact mm -hmm. at the state level, because they can't just push the money printer button. They have to actually care about what the policy does to help grow the state and advance the state. Whereas in DC, um, it, certainly people care internally, mm -hmm. but that's not the big driver. The incentive. That's not the, the ultimate incentive. The ultimate yeah. incentive in DC is, is access to the ability to just get free money. Yes. And that is, I would say, the heart of corruption in DC, right? Like if the, if the money printer went away, then it, people in DC would be more accountable to the preferences of states yep. and citizens more generally. Well, and the taxes too. Like, I mean, they—that's a sort of an invisible tax. Yeah, they would have to actually raise taxes, exactly, and then be and then be sort of exposed to the political damage. Where there's yes. almost no political damage from right. pushing the money printer yeah. button because there's no people don't even it's, have a great way of conceptualizing the impact. They can't they can't look at their bill or their exactly. their uh, pay stub and say, oh, look, there's a three percent inflation tax exactly. on there. But but if you tax them three percent, they notice exactly. it and they get pissed. Exactly. So it will force lawmakers to say, okay. We we're gonna raise taxes, but we're gonna we better be smart about when we do it because there could be political backlash from it. Yes. So by making taxation more explicit and less surreptitious, mm -hmm. it's enforcing accountability 
on tax authorities, right? Like they need to be accountable yeah. for the taxes they are levying. Whereas when you're pressing the money printer, you're pressing print over here, inflation's happening and they're blaming Putin, supply chains, Beyonce. Like there's yeah. all this plausible deniability because people don't understand how money works. It mean, yeah, it's yeah. Before Bitcoin, I neither did I. So yeah, well, same here, basically. Yeah. So it's a it's a great scam. Um, which I guess is another feature of Bitcoin is that it's waking people up to the how it works. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Tell me about the digital bill of rights. Are these actually enumerated rights that you're trying to get passed into law or what? what, what is this? So we really see that there are core pieces of ways that Bitcoin is used, whether that be mining, um, you know, validation through node running, whether that be using it, self-custodying. We see these as like pivotal pieces of how Bitcoin operates and that access to that technology from that avenue is important in order for Bitcoin to be, you know, successful. I'm sort of long-term bullish that Bitcoin will win regardless, but I'm more really concerned about Americans right now being able to access mm -hmm. and being able to use Bitcoin. And so we protect um, things like self-custody. We protect the right to mine Bitcoin. Um, and also we create um, some protections for certain types of discriminations mm -hmm. for Bitcoin miners. Um, we create the right to run a node. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also little things like a de minimis exemption, which, you know, that might not be like, oh, it's a right to use the technology. But one of the really big problems with using Bitcoin as money is that every time you use it, you're like having to track it and account yeah. for it. And it really makes it sort of sure. encumbered as a, as a, money or a currency, you yeah. could say. So we want to create an avenue to start getting rid of that where people can mm -hmm. do the $200 de minimis exemption. So anything under 200 bucks, you don't have to pay state cap gains. And oh, per uh, transaction. Per transaction. And it's, it's it's um pegged to inflation. Yeah. So it'll rise with the, if inflation yeah. starts, starts to go up. Um, ultimately, we would love to see that Bitcoin is not exposed to any sort of cap gains at all. It just currency. acknowledges a money yeah. and as a currency. Um, but that's a long ways away. But this is a, that's the beginning of that, yeah. right? It's like we're trying to set, okay, let's test it out a little bit at 200. Yeah. Let's see if it works. And then hopefully that gets adopted broadly and and sort of totally removed one yeah. day I would be would be valuable as well. Uh, speaking with Estes yesterday, he was saying that treating taxing Bitcoin as property rather than having having it be non-taxable when you transact in it as a currency, having it legally acknowledged as a currency was not something that went through Congress, actually. This is something IRS just did unilaterally. Mm. And so it would therefore be revocable by executive order. Oh, interesting. I haven't heard that argument. And so say RFK has put that on the table. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, it's certainly at the federal level is where I want to see something like that take place because yeah. that's really where the big, I mean, most, most um, states don't have a sizable 
state cap yeah. gains. Some have none at all. Yeah. Um, but the federal one is, you know, what, 25%. So yeah. that's a big hurt yeah. to anyone trying to use Bitcoin as money. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then what are the states? You said there's 16 states poised to mm -hmm. introduce this to. So we have four that have done it already. Yeah. Um, Nebraska, Indiana, Virginia, mm -hmm. and Missouri. And they've already introduced it. So you can go look up the bill number. Um, we're actually going to put out a map eventually to really help people track down where these are happening at. So, um, But then there's going to be about 11 more, 15, 12 more states that join that. And we, we don't announce them until they actually introduce it because, um, you know, we don't, we can't guarantee that it will get an introduction until it's introduced. Yeah. So um, we'll announce those states when they come out. But uh, we're very excited. And in fact, in Virginia, we had our first um, Democrat bill sponsor. So we're very excited to be working with a Democrat now, working across party aisles to make sure that this technology is is totally protected at the state level. Nice. Very cool. I asked you this offline, but I want to ask it again. So these things, right? Self-custody, uh, running a node, mining, validating, like these are just basically free speech acts, mm -hmm. right? If you really boil it down, you're just running software, essentially. Does that ever enter the discussion? I know you were saying this is more of like a Supreme Court level decision if it, if it came to be a matter of First Amendment rights, but it just seems like something that, back to the enforceability idea, if someone's thinking about banning self-custody or getting on board with Senator Warren to ban self-custody, does the conversation not ever come? It's like, look, you can, these are words that you can memorize and that your brain becomes a self-custody wallet or an unhosted wallet, I think is the yeah. terminology <laughs> she uses. Doesn't that just like, I mean, it seems like that would just be such an obvious wake-up call to people that might be, I guess, flirting with the idea of trying to ban unhosted wallets, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, and in, I sort of repeat some of the things I said before um, the show started, and that's really just that, that area of, you know, judicial sort of determination on whether our rights to access Bitcoin, self-custody Bitcoin, mm -hmm. is that protected under the First Amendment? Um, I mean, I believe it is, yeah. definitely. But the problem um, that we face today is that we just don't know for sure if that's how they're going to see it at the Supreme Court level. I mean, this is a totally brand new technology, um, and I'm not sure if they will view it in that same light. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. Um, I think the truth is on our side. I think we're in a good position constitutionally, but I'm not going to rely on that. And it's also not my expertise. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm, I'm never going to be able to go to the Supreme Court and battle for yeah. for, uh, for Bitcoin. Maybe, I'll, maybe someone will ask me to testify one day or something like that, but I'm not. I'm never going to lead that charge. Yeah. There are great organizations out there that are in a position to do that. But our position is that um, we hope those organizations pursue that yeah. avenue if it yeah. comes up, but we're going to pursue the avenue that we know will help put Bitcoin in a great position. And also we can, at the same time, simultaneously, we can ensure that Bitcoiners, Bitcoin companies, Bitcoin mining companies um, stay here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Because if we weren't, didn't exist and weren't doing what we're about to do, which is we hope to pass policy in about 10 states, people might be like, wow, the USA is really headed in a bad direction. We should start looking to go elsewhere. So one of my goals is not just to like get to that point where we're really, you know, uh, tinfoil hat, like protecting Bitcoin yeah. from Senator Elizabeth Warren, which is is one part of what we're doing. Right. But I also, along the way, want to people give people confidence that Satoshi Action Fund is here. Mm -hmm. There are other organizations here as well at the state level, but we are the one at the national level passing these policies. We're here to make sure that your rights are protected. And so it gives people this sort of like confidence, like, oh, okay, like 
these people are battling in my corner. And I think that Dennis can at least at bare minimum create some sort of um, of a haven. Yeah. Maybe it's not the entire United States, but 75% of the states should at bare minimum pass this type of policy. Yeah. Um, it's very reasonable. It doesn't ask for anything. It's very nonpartisan. Um, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm in those states. I'm in that area. I'm not concerned. And so I'm going to stay here. I'm going to keep my business in America. Mm. I'm going to keep my Bitcoin in America um, and hope to grow this country into the future. So that's kind of a you know, why I'm part of why I'm doing it, right? It's like yeah. keep people here. And, and as Mimi, we never face that big battle yeah. um, against the federal government. But along the way, we're also making sure people aren't as worried about it. Yeah. And it sort of de-risks their idea of operating in the United States. Yeah, it's like a hope for the best, plan for the worst type of thing. Absolutely. And you're also taking a stand at the Alamo because the U.S. Constitution is the bulwark against the push for one world government. So- might as well take your stand here in the U.S. So I, yes. I applaud the job. Speaking of being strategic, though, I think this last point is probably the one of the most strategic things we could do as Bitcoiners, and that is to get state pensions to just buy Bitcoin. Yeah. Because once you, I mean, this is the magic of Bitcoin, right? Like once you have exposure to this asset or you own some of it, all of a sudden you, your orientation shifts pretty dramatically. Most people become evangelizers for Bitcoin uh, once they get some skin in the game. So what is the strategy there? How do we get Bitcoin on the balance sheet of state pensions? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've I've thought about for a long time, how to get states into the Bitcoin game mm -hmm. from an asset perspective. We, I want them to buy it. I want them to hold it. Um, for those of you that have followed me for a long time that are listening into the show, I you know back in the day, I was trying to get uh, Bitcoin to be um, an actual currency here in the United States mm -hmm. and to be legal currency. And um, that was just more difficult and proved to be pretty um, hard to move forward. On top of all that, we wanted states to, bu to buy Bitcoin as mm -hmm. well. But it, the idea of getting a state to self-custody Bitcoin right now is a little bit of a stretch for where they're at. You, know, you kind of have to meet people where they're at sometimes. And so once the Bitcoin ETF started to move forward, we really saw, our team really saw an opportunity to say, okay, well, maybe there is a way here where state pensions and state pension fund managers would look at the Bitcoin ETF and go, okay, we should add a little bit of that to our, mm -hmm. our balance sheet. But we don't take the stance that it's just going to happen automatically. Mm -hmm. We think we need to go in and help incentivize this process and, and hopefully speed it up. Um, and that's why we're going to be working to pass a, a resolution to encourage state pension fund managers and treasurers of the states to study Bitcoin and the Bitcoin ETF and determine if it makes sense to make an allocation to mm -hmm. the Bitcoin ETF. So that's a that's going to be a big thing for us. We already have lawmakers willing to and interested to put that resolution forward. Right. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's like these these state pension funds they have five point five trillion dollars of assets under management. Even a small allocation would make an incredible difference to the inflow, and again, would sort of put those states mm -hmm. on the side of Bitcoin. And maybe long term, it'd fix the pensions, right? Because it's like your the pensions right. are all underfunded, right? But a small allocation of Bitcoin could turn into a very big allocation of Bitcoin in a very short period of time. Yeah, that's pretty widespread, right? Like. Well, all or almost all of these state pensions are underfunded. I, I would, I'd have to look at the data. I just yeah. know it's a it's a problem everywhere I look, and, yeah. um, and every every pension that I look at, and there's a number of reasons why. And yeah. so I'm not here to blame anybody, but we are in the boat that we're in, and we should try to make sure that we you know we protect these pensions because if they go bust, I mean that's going to be horribly uh, rough for yeah. these folks. A lot of state employees. There's a lot of state employees that participate in these things. Um, Very but, destabilizing socially too if those go bust. That's right. So one of our goals in this process is going to be to get the ETF issuers in front of 
uh, lawmakers, in front of the pension board managers, mm-hmm. in front of state treasurers to reduce that sort of, or to de-risk the idea of um, allocating to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. do the study with them, uh, really come to understand how this thing works. Yeah. Um, and we also want to do research. We Hopefully it'll be peer-reviewed research. Can't guarantee anything because mm-hmm. it's not something, it's like mm-hmm. passing a law, you you know, well, you right. try. Right. If it doesn't get passed, we, the research will still be there. Yeah. And the premise of that research will be to take an evolution on um, modern portfolio theory. Yeah. Modern portfolio theory is like, oh, get some stocks, get some bonds, get some real estate, just diversify as much mm-hmm. as you can to protect from the potential yeah. of your sort of portfolio going to zero. Right. Um, and you know, a long time ago, someone did a paper on that, a research on that, and they got a Nobel Prize for mm-hmm. it. Well, someone came along and they said, well, what if we add a little bit of gold to this that? is the 60 40 yeah this is the traditional 60 40 split it, it's in alignment with that it's all about diversification yeah. um it's all about making sure that you are not going to be ex- too highly exposed right and so um some but someone came along and said well, what if we add a little slice of gold to that and because gold is a non-correlating asset yeah. all of a sudden all the numbers started looking way better right and he won a Nobel prize yeah so what we want to do is do research to say well what if we add just a little tiny bit of bitcoin in there yeah. what does that do to the portfolio and, yeah. and the potential for it to go to zero or to be, you know, come bust. And our thesis, we haven't done the, the research yet, but our thesis is that it will get look really nice on paper. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I've seen a number of these analyses where it's like, you know, 90% USD, 10% BTC outperforms the S&P 500 or every year over the yeah. past decade. You see uh, people adding 5% to a 60-40 portfolio because it's non-correlated. You're, you're getting upside from Bitcoin, right. but you're not getting as much downside. So increasing the sharp ratio of the risk adjusted returns. Um, it seems, I mean, this is where I always throw around this term game theory and Bitcoin, but like there's a lot of different aspects where it's so favorable to individual self-interest that it becomes, you can't, becomes a situation you can't ignore, right? And that's, I think that's how we've seen the the ETFs come into play, right? Obviously, there's a lot of legal action taking place behind the scenes and pushing back against the SEC, but there's a lot of demand for investors, right? They they don't, they can't find adequate returns to meet their targets, whether Mm -hmm. it's a pension or whatever it may be. And Bitcoin, like sitting out at the distant end of that risk curve just looks more and more appealing when you can't find the yield that you need or the returns that you need. So, what and and there was some research done too, and someone have to check me on this because I just heard it secondhand. But BlackRock, mm. yeah, does you're also finding that research. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this blew me away. That Estes said yesterday that BlackRock put out some research looking at the efficient frontier of an investment portfolio. <laughs> the number came back: eighty-four percent allocation to Bitcoin. Wild was like the the highest risk-adjusted return. I've got to see the, the numbers for my or the paper for myself because those numbers sound crazy. Yeah. It makes somewhat makes sense that it would be overweight Bitcoin, but that's that's nasty. pretty very overweight. I mean, for someone like BlackRock to come yeah. out with some a number like that, that's pretty incredible. Yes. Um. So when will you? What, so what are the next steps then on this research? Mm-hmm. Like you guys have people in house. You're going to start looking at this, doing this that's type right. of analysis, and then you where do you what do you do with that analysis? You take this out to state pension fund managers, and you just start. Yeah. lobbying them effectively. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's that's one way to say it. I mean we I I do try to tell people I'm a little different than a lobbyist. A lobbyist is hired by someone else to go right. help pass a law. Um I would consider us to be more like advocates. We care a lot about Bitcoin. We're working we're we're a nonprofit. Yeah. Um, we're working to help uh, the United States be forward thinking and forward leading on Bitcoin. 
Um, we sort of view that if the United States is leading on Bitcoin, the, mm-hmm. the world is a, is a better place. So um, on this resolution, what you do is you get a lawmaker, introduce it. Generally speaking, most states, you just need it to pass on one side, mm-hmm. House or Senate. You don't need a governor's signature. And then it moves forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, that uh, resolution will encourage state pension fund managers and the treasurer to start taking a look at the Bitcoin ETF and start studying it. Mm-hmm. And during that process, we as an organization will act as a third party validator because we're not uh, we're not a sort of a Bitcoin company. Mm-hmm. We're not an ETF issuer. Um, we're not in government. We're in that middle that middle yeah. ground, and we can come in and say, you know, we are advocating for this technology, and we believe this is a good idea. And then if it, you know, all things work well, yeah. we may be working very close in tandem with the study as they're going through that. And then that's an opportunity for us to take this research we're trying to do. Um, with our internal capacity. We have a uh, science director who has 25 years of academic mm-hmm. experience, worked in the Canadian government, worked in the UN, mm-hmm. uh, worked in universities all across the um, the world, mm-hmm. and is now poised to be uh, a leader, um, maybe the number one, you know, most papers produced by an academic on Bitcoin here soon. Wow. I don't know. We I don't have to do a sort of a, a strong crawl of the internet, but yeah. he's, if you know, if you go look up uh, Dr. Murray Rudd, you'll be able to see some of the papers that he's put out. And there's papers that have come out now that are that he doesn't have his name on, but he mm. played a pivotal part in making sure that they got through the process. Mm. But um, he has a PhD uh, in environmental economics. And so his his sort of economics abilities will be utilized in crafting this paper. We'll, we'll likely bring in others as well to mm-hmm. move the paper forward. But once it's finalized, drafted, um, completed, could take about a month or so. Then we try to push it through the peer review process. Mm. Could take a little longer, depending. Um, there's been research done that's very similar to what we're trying to do. Yeah. So it's not like we're starting from zero and we can use some of that research and then um, update it and and sort of improve it from where we are today. But once the resolution passes, then it's be, then it really just sort of becomes a long-term education effort. Mm. And that's where we're going to be working hand in hand with, you know, state treasurers, yeah. uh, the ETF issuers. We've talked to a number of different companies that are issuing the ETFs. One and one last note here that's really important. So this is so people realize that this is not a crazy sort of um, unrealistic thing. These com- some of the companies, BlackRock Fidelity particularly, already sell ETFs to state yeah. pension funds. Yeah. So they're probably already having these conversations to some sure. degree. So what we want to come in and do is, like I said, accelerate that process mm-hmm. and act as that third-party validator. So they're not just going, oh, of course, BlackRock wants to make more money, right? Mm-hmm. Like These are actual advocates coming in and saying this is a good idea. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, I was just reflecting as you're saying that how Bitcoin somehow energizes its own educational process. Like, mm-hmm. like this show is just, I mean, not just Bitcoin education. We talk about a lot of different things, but it's amazing to see that that's basically what Satoshi Action Fund is as well, right? Like you're an educational advocacy group or just a, addressing a different audience effectively. Um, and I, I was just reflecting, this is so interesting, like because we fall into this Bitcoin rabbit hole, you have to learn a, a little bit about a lot of different things to start to put the pieces together to comprehend Bitcoin. And then there's a business and taking those learnings out into the world. And so it's just fascinating how Bitcoin is bootstrapping its own permeation into the minds of other people. It's it's when it's like the, the fascinating part about it too is that like you go into any room and you ask people who's heard of Bitcoin, you know, every hand will raise. Yeah, it's like in no there was no CEO, there was no marketing company. It was just me, it was just you, right? Um, others that are doing media out there, um, getting the good information out for people to hear. Yeah, and the Fed helping a lot. Yeah, yeah it's, printing it's all those paying dollars, attention right? to it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, they they help. They sort of accelerate the interest in a space whenever they attack it that's for sure well attack it but also just the money printing right the number go up like right ngu technology is great for marketing yes exactly so it's 
the most effective marketing by far and which is being pushed by you know you're pricing it in terms of dollars well the reason it's going up in terms of dollars is because the dollars are getting depreciated very rapidly so um there's this kind of ironic component that those who are most arrayed against bitcoin are those which are most energizing its growth education I was just talking to um, you know, Peter about this. We had, he, he had an episode that came out a little while later called The Cheat Code because we, we had breakfast and we chatted. We said, we, we both agreed. Like, if you just like put value into Bitcoin, like mm-hmm. you put not just like your money, like yeah. your time and your energy into yeah. it. I it mean, it's not going to be automatic, but it, it, get, like, it, it returns it back to yes. you. So it's very interesting. And it's really why I'm so bullish on Bitcoin here in America. I want more Bitcoin. Americans to be involved. And again, this is not an anti outside of America, sure. but this is the country I live in. And um, I certainly want the place that I live to be yeah. a good place for not only the, my future, but my family's future. Yeah. And so it's, it's that idea though, that if you add value in, like this thing can return value to you dramatically. Yeah. And so I encourage everyone, I would say, you know, start a Bitcoin business, start yeah. a podcast, yeah. try, 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 fail and find the thing that works for you. I mean, I was, I did a podcast and then eventually now I'm doing, you know, yeah. all just policy stuff. So yeah. it, it just means like, it's what I try to convey to people is like, just get in and like do something. Yeah, I mean, there's there's room for everyone. Bitcoin needs well, it doesn't need anyone, but also needs everyone. It's kind of yeah. a paradox. Yes. Um, it's a fun paradox. And it's, uh, I mean, for those that are intellectually curious, it's just infinitely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, what is this journey meant to you? You've been going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole for what three, four years now? Two thousand seventeen. Two thousand seventeen. Yeah. Okay, so seven years. Mm-hmm. What? How much? How has this changed your life, and what has this journey meant to you? That's a great question. I haven't answered that one for a while, but I would say the biggest impact that Bitcoin has had on my life is creating um, a vision of a better future. Mm. And that might not seem very important, but pre-Bitcoin, I was what? Well, what's the term? I was kind of like I just didn't really see that there was a whole lot out mm-hmm. there. Um, nihilistic nihilistic is it like sort of I wouldn't say extreme nihilism maybe it's a little too extreme for a term but just generally pessimistic very pessimistic very nihilistic around sort of the direction of the world and Mm -hmm. what's the purpose of it and I feel like Bitcoin has sort of filled my life with an immense amount of purpose and has driven me to do things that I didn't think I would do especially not quite you know Mm -hmm. my age I'm only 35 Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've had uh, the honor of being able to go and learn how to craft and produce and publish you know, um, sort of uh, model policy around Bitcoin yeah. and then get it passed at the state level. And I mean, that's very rewarding. It's like, yeah. you know, it's, there's a lot of things in life that you can do um, that deliver a level of like satisfaction and um, feeling like you're making progress in life. But uh, man, it was, it was an incredible, mm-hmm. that first year when we passed law, it was like it's such mm-hmm. a journey because you, you, you start a year prior practically mm-hmm. crafting it and, you know, getting it introduced, working with the lawmaker, mm-hmm. um, going, flying into the state, going back and forth, like, almost like the bill almost dying, you know, stuff like yeah. that, coming back to life and, and getting to the end. And so that was, um, I really enjoyed that process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I could see myself doing for, you know, decades. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah and I love to hear those stories where Bitcoiners find their calling mm-hmm. inside of Bitcoin. And yeah, it might take some experimentation, some trial and error, but always lovely to see it come together. Absolutely. Um, where can people find you on the internet and where can people support the Satoshi Action Fund? Yeah, I mean, uh, satoshiaction.io is our website. You can go there, you can donate. We certainly need support. If you feel like you believe you want America to be the best place to be a Bitcoiner, be a Bitcoin miner, and you want to see these laws get passed to protect your rights to access and self-custody Bitcoin and to mine Bitcoin, uh, we do need support. This stuff is not, 
is not free. Mm-hmm. It's very expensive, in fact. Mm-hmm. And so the more money we raise, the more we can do. Uh, we are, you know, we always are deploying, you know, all the money that comes in is getting deployed. And so our ability of what we've been able to do so far is an extension of the resources that we have. Mm-hmm. So if we were to double or triple our budget, you know, we would double or triple the impact that we're having. Right. So we do say, tell people, you know, if you can um, go to satoshiaction.io slash donate, and there's a great place to, to donate there. If you're just looking for me, you want to get in contact with me and go to Twitter. You can look up Dennis Porter. I'll probably be the top result, but it's at Dennis underscore Porter underscore. Um, and I pretty much check all my DMs. So if you're, you know, if you're a lawmaker, if you're a regulator, if you want to learn about Bitcoin, if you are a Bitcoin business that wants to support us, if you're an individual that wants to volunteer, I mean, there's a ton of opportunities. So mm-hmm. I hope people will reach out and engage with us on this issue. Awesome. Dennis, man, thank yeah. you for doing this. Thanks, Robert.